It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 72, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today, Jen Campbell, raises two acres of vegetables on Canada's Prince Edward Island at Jen and Derek's Organic Farm. She sells about $80,000 of certified organic vegetables per year, primarily through a 90-member CSA, as well as to a retail store and a wholesale distributor. Jen has been farming on Prince Edward Island since 2006, and she tells the story of growing her farm from a part-time operation to a full-time income. We talk about how she made the leap to full-time farming including the decisions that she and Derek made to have Jen focus on the farm while Derek works off farm. Jen also provides an honest look at her experience of having twins early in her full-time farming career, how she managed that in the early years, and the decisions that she made around childcare and schooling. Prince Edward Island is potato country, and Jen and Derek's organic farm is located in one corner of a conventional potato farm. Jen shares the social and cultural strategies she follows to maintain the integrity of organic crops, and how she fits into the community of conventional potato growers on the island. We also touch on her participation in a winter CSA program, including how to harvest roots on a small scale and the economics of winter storage, as well as tractor farming on two acres and how she's adapted the food safety practices of her conventional large-scale neighbors to her own operation. Jen's the real deal. I hope you enjoy getting to know her. I know I did. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by FarmFan. Ever wish you could text a reminder to all of your customers? FarmFan does just that, increasing market turnout and sales week after week. FarmFanApp.com or see farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash sponsors for 25% off your six or 12 month subscription. Jen Campbell, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So great that you could join me today. I, I hear that it's a, a rainy and cool day out there in the Atlantic Ocean. Yes, it's, it's definitely, it's windy and it's cool and it's wet, but we're grateful for the rain because it was very dry. So Jen, I thought it would be great if you could start us off by talking some about Jen and Derek's organic farm and and especially your location there on Prince Edward Island, which maybe I'll let you do the geography on that so that I don't screw it up. <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds good. So we live um, on PEI and we live just about 10 minutes outside of Summerside. So that's, um, we're both, we're not the, the western part of the province, but we're definitely, when people talk about PEI, we're at the western end of the island. Although there's, there's always a controversy on PEI if you're from up west or down east, but we're, we're not central, we're not west, we're not east. We're kind of on the western side. But um, yeah, so we live close to a city, which is about 14,000 people. And where the farm is situated, we are in potato belts. We are surrounded by um, potato farmers, and most of them are fairly large farms, um, growing maybe anywhere between 500 and eight, 900 acres of potatoes. So we are nestled on our small little four-acre uh, four rental parcel amidst uh, lots of uh, potato growers. So it's a beautiful part of the island. It's very flat, um, very windy here all the time, but uh, very grateful to, to be here. Uh, we came from, we had a farm in Brookvale, which is... Um, hillier part of the island and we moved uh, there in 2006 I believe we bought our first farm and then um, we uh, we've been here now at this new farm for five years so uh, it's much flatter here and uh, uh, yeah beautiful beautiful part of the island and Prince Edward Island is is located north of Nova Scotia and east of New Brunswick right 
Yeah, we're basically, if you look at a map, you'll see New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, and then we're just up above, and we're just sitting in this beautiful little oasis, which I think is a beautiful oasis, where we've got a bridge that connects us, and we can get here from a ferry, but otherwise, we're pretty we're pretty secluded. Which, again, is for, for those of us who are provincial Americans like me, um, kind of, you're off to the east of northern Maine, so you're actually, you know, you're, you're way out there. Um, the... You mentioned the potato farms in the area. Now you rent land from your from your father, right? Yes, we do. Yeah, we when we decided to sell our first farm, we approached my family's farm um, because we wanted to be closer to to both of our families, and we found a place that we really really loved. What um, was just a house, but it was also right next door to one of my father's fields. So we convinced them to let us rent four acres of the land, which we have now converted to um, to organic land. Um, but it's a really kind of a unique, uh, unique opportunity to be immersed in organic agriculture, but surrounded by conventional farmers, which most of the land right around us is my father's. But there's also others, um, our neighbors that aren't family, but but they are neighbors. Potato farming is is a pretty chemically soaked agriculture. Yeah, um, potato farming is yeah relies heavily on inputs, and here on the island, it's. It's big business here on PEI, and like many of my neighbors um, and my whole family, I grew up, I'm a potato baby, I grew up um, on a potato farm, and it's very divisive here, like um, it tends to be very, um, I don't know if not politically correct, but it's a hard hard business to be in now. Um, The public, the perception isn't very favorable. The potato growers have um, have a hard job because they... To produce the amount of acres that they're in production, they rely heavily on on chemical fertilizers and on pesticides um, to get that product which they need to, um, for production for their French fries. So, it's yeah, it's not, it's definitely not an organic um, production. Um, but I know that I know many potato farmers that I, I work for a little bit. I do help them with their many with their on-farm food safety audits, and they have a hard they have a hard job. They it's their neighbors don't often maybe approve of their practices, but, you know, I, I feel that even though we farm very differently, they take great pride in, in the production that they, they produce. Um, and I know not a lot of them, they, they don't like spraying. It's not something that they want to do. Um, my father drives a water truck. My uncle drives a sprayer. You know, and I don't think anyone gets up at, you know, four in the morning and wants to go spray, but it's just part of their, it's part of their production. And um, I'm, I'm just grateful that I don't have to. I don't have to drive that there. <laughs> now, are you guys certified organic? Yes. Yep. We are certified organic. And being in the middle of all of that production, you know, a two acre plot's a pretty small plot. How, what kinds of steps are you taking to, to make sure that you can maintain your certified status? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, people ask us that all the time. I mean, in a perfect world, it's not, it's not ideal how in our situation where we were at our other farm in Brookdale, we were completely secluded by anybody. So we were, when you thought of it, like, quote, unquote, it was easy to be organic there because we didn't have any drift. Here we are, one of our, our field is actually right next to my father's field, which we have um, the proper buffer. We actually took twice the amount of buffer that the regulations stated. And then on the other, the other two sides, we have a roadway in between plus a buffer. And then on the third side is our, our farm driveway and our own property. So it's, it's really only the one side. And every year when our organic inspector, come, inspector comes to do our inspection, 
it is always something that they note as a point of concern um, because my father's land and our land are basically right next door to each other and we don't have any windbreaks or, or hedgerows. So it is definitely something that they note every year, but they also note that we are completely in compliance and we, we take double the buffer that we're required. But it is optics, you know? People say, oh, how can you really be organic? You're right next to a conventional farm. Well, I mean, the CFIA defines the buffer and we, you know, we follow that and then took it took twice as much as they required. So, you know, you do your best and and dad, when I have employees that are maybe nervous about, you know, sprays, dad usually calls me in the morning and says, okay, we're going to be next door at nine o'clock. So that way we can have our harvesting done. Um, and maybe we can be in the, in the packing shed when he comes with the sprayer. But I mean, optics aren't great. I mean, it's when I look out and I'm harvesting and I see the sprayer come down the door, you know, it, you feel a little awkward because, you know, here we are in an organic farm, but, you know, I follow the regulations and, and I know dad and them follow their regulations for um, spraying in the proper weather. So, you know, you kind of trust the process. So, yeah. Well, and I guess that's a place where it's probably an advantage to have a relationship with your dad as, as the landowner so that you're, you're not just dealing with some stranger or, or somebody from the local farmer's co-op coming down. And, and I mean, I know in Iowa, we used to see, I mean, we saw crazy spraying going on and, and you know, crazy high winds and, and, uh, and pretty much, you know, our, our neighbors cared, but when they would hire somebody else to come in to do the spraying, right. those folks didn't give two, two poots about us. Yeah, no, you're right. And we, we are very fortunate that it's my own father that, and my family farm, you know, it's my uncles and my brother and my dad. So, you know, we have great communication. They kind of give me a hard time sometimes, you know, oh, you know, it's like, I'm just, it's my hobby farm, right? <laughs> because they're, they're growing huge acres. So I think sometimes I might be the community joke, but at the same time, you know, I feel that I have respect for what they do. I might not farm the same way, but I hope that, you know, the respect is, is you know, I think, I think there's, I think there's mutual respect there back and forth yeah, for sure. And not to dwell too much on, on the potato farms around you, but I'm, I'm curious what, what does the potato farming economy look like there on, on PEI? Because I know, you know, here in the Midwest, in the United States, the, the farm economy is, is not looking good right now. You know, prices are kind of in the toilet. Uh, input prices are up. There's a lot of, there's a real credit crunch going on right now. Um, are you seeing sort of a similar environment economically on PEI for the potato farms? Or is, is that still a pretty economically viable way for your neighbors to make a living? Well, like it's hard for me to really say that without knowing, um, you know, each firm is probably in a different financial situation. Like I, because of the the, the work I do with some growers um, with their on-farm food safety, I have, you know, I sit there and I, and, and they like to talk to me. I don't know if it almost feels like therapy sometimes. And I know a lot of them are going through some very stressful times. Um, but, you know, I think, I think what we've seen over the last few years is there's been a lot of smaller guys have, have gotten out of the industry because of the, the real industry here is French fries. And one of our main um, processors moved out of the province last year, the year before. So there's one processor left and, you know, they, they tend to deal with the bigger farms. So I think some of the small guys have definitely felt the pressure and have, have sold out to their neighbors. Um, and it's a it's a high stress it's a very high stress industry. I mean, I'm super proud of my family and and how far they've come. Um, they've really mechanized the last few years, put up new infrastructure. But I know it must be like I mean I have no idea what their books look like, and I'm sure they have some good years and some bad years. 
Um, but I definitely, I, I hear the growers and, and there's a lot of stress, but I mean, there's a lot of pride too in, you know, in your, in their equipment and, and, you know, like I know there's always, everyone's looking for land. So everyone's still trying to, trying to grow. So I, yeah, I guess that's a hard, it's a hard one for me to really comment on because, you know, the industry I know is having a hard time, but you know, the producers, there's still lots of producers and they're still trying to buy more land. So, you know, they're still, they're still going. <laughs> You said you've got about two acres of vegetables in production. Yep. Okay. And and about, you know, three acres of, of growing ground and four acres altogether that you're renting. Do you guys live there on the farm? Yeah, we live, um, if you took like an, or, an overhead shot or an aerial photo, we basically lived on a, a, a long driveway. We're kind of tucked into the woods and we have a house and then we built a packing shed or a shop. And then our field is this kind of right in front of our house. Um, it's a triangle and I, I kind of joke with my family farm that I did them a favor all I did was really square off their fields so they don't have to farm this annoying little triangle so yeah it's just a, it's a tiny little spot um, but it's my tiny little spot <laughs> all right and and how are you selling your vegetables well we have a 90 member CSA and we do um, a prepaid CSA so people pay us up front in the spring and we do a weekly and a bi-weekly. We don't do like a large and a small share. We used to do the two sizes, but I found it, I found it confusing to try and, and, and do the two sizes. So I went with a weekly and a bi-weekly. And we also sell to two small, kind of two small independent little stores. And then we also sell wholesale to a company called Plated. And Plated buys vegetables um, and fruits from small organic or small local farms here in PEI, and then they deal with the restaurants. So they come and pick up the product twice a week at our farms, and I don't know how many farms they deal with, maybe around nine or ten, and then they deliver to restaurants. Um, and they're really highly sought after by restaurants because they um, they only pick growers with, who have um, high quality, and they're really great to work with. And we've been working with them since we lived at our old farm in Brookvale. And they're, yeah, I can't say enough about them. They're, they're great folks to work with. That's interesting to me that they're picking up from, you know, nine different farms and, and delivering to a bunch of different restaurants. And that's all happening there on Prince Edward Island, which, I mean, it's not a huge island. It's, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I just Googled it and you got about 150,000 people that live on the island there. I mean, is there a pretty active local food scene? Um. There is a local, a pretty good local food scene, but we're also, we're, it's a huge, tourism here is huge. Um, Prince Edward Island um, in the summer, it just gets, gets taken over by tourists. Um, so I think restaurants have a hard time maybe in the off season, but there are so many restaurants um, and basically mostly in Charlottetown or maybe like on the North Shore. Plate it does deal with some in Summerside, but mostly it would be in the Charlottetown scene. But yeah, tourism in the summer is is huge here. Yeah, it's really big. So you've got the 90 CSA members. Now that's 90 boxes that you're delivering every week, right? Yeah. Yeah, we have about 100, 120 families. And then some of those families choose to get their boxes every week and some choose to get them every two weeks. But we're doing anywhere between 90 and 100 because sometimes in the summer we do have summer clients, but they're only here maybe for four to eight weeks. So I usually just say like typically it's about a 90, 90 member CSA. And can you tell us a little bit about how you got that CSA structured? Folks picking up on the farm, or are you delivering those into town? Yeah, so what we do is every Tuesday, 
Um, and our CFA is just a seasonal CFA. So we run from like the end of June till the first of November. So we do every Tuesday we deliver to Charlottetown and we go to a central pickup and we, we do like a, a market style CFA, I guess you would call it. So we, we have a tent that I set up and I have a whiteboard and I tell everybody, you know, you're entitled to these nine things. So it's all set up market style. Um, so they pick like, you know, whatever bunch of radishes they want with a bunch of carrots or the, the bag of greens. And then once everybody gets those things, then they go to what I call the grab box system. And how I run that system is um, instead of customizing all the boxes or, or packing boxes, like I used to pack everybody the same share in a, like a Rubbermaid tote. And I decided that um, based on survey results that I wanted to give people more choice. So they can go to the grab box system and essentially that's, it's kind of like a free-for-all. So let's say they already got their 9 to 12 items, uh, depending on what we had offered that week. So when they go to the grab box side, it's kind of like six-foot tables. There's probably two to six tables, depending on the time of the year. So let's say I'll have my, like, basil, cilantro, dill, kale, collards, things that not necessarily everybody wants every week, but there's always people. So, like, I might take um, – so out of, like, the 50 or the 45 people that are picking up – um, in Charlottetown on that Tuesday, I might have like 15 bunches of kale, um, maybe 20 bunches of dill. I might have, um, maybe there wasn't enough broccoli for everyone. So I'll put the broccoli and the cauliflower. If there wasn't enough, I'll put that in the grab box system. So what I do is I try to give people as much flexibility and choice as I can. And I think that's why, like, we have a really high retention rate on our CSA. We usually have about a 96% retention rate. And I think it's because we give people so much choice um, and because we're not going to a farmer's market, you know, we're not, I don't feel the, the, the pinch, you know, I, to try and save as much as I can for the market. So our customers are always super happy with the selection. They always go away with the vegetables that they want. Um, and so then we repeat that process again on Thursday. We set up in Summerside, do the same thing with the tent and the grab box system. And then for folks who don't necessarily want to be tied down either those pickup times they can come here to the farm anytime after four o'clock on Thursday so Saturday at lunchtime and there's a cooler like a Pepsi cooler or a double door cooler and essentially their boxes are packed with their name on it but then there's also three or four Rubbermaid containers and their grab box so it's the same idea if they don't like the broccoli in their share they can leave it behind but they can also take we always have extra things there for them so it gives the the people that live in our neighborhood or or maybe that just don't want to be tied down to a pickup time and gives them the flexibility to come at their own convenience so i think it kind of makes i think it kind of works for everybody it works for us and uh, we have super happy members which makes this whole thing worthwhile well yeah a 96 percent retention rate is i mean that's kind of outrageous well like we've i've always been super proud of that because I mean, I'm not a big farm. I don't want to be a big farm. I I work really hard to make people happy and to make people comfortable with the system because I don't want to have to look for people every year because that's a lot of work. You know, I have to train members on the pickup time. We have very loyal customers that, you know, and I don't advertise. It's basically just word of mouth. So if for some reason somebody moved away or it just wasn't working for them, I mean, we have about a 45 person waiting list at all times. So we, we're very fortunate with our members. We have amazing people who support us. And that's the reason why I do this, because because of them, for sure. Are members involved in coming out to the farm? Then um, do people people actually come out and like 
you know, work and, and engage in the operation or is, is, is yours pretty much just moving stuff to town for them? Well, I, what, I guess like when I first started, I apprenticed on a farming wealth. I was an apprentice on an organic farm there and we always tried to get people out for like weeding days, but that never was very successful. People always liked the idea of helping, but maybe not necessarily the actions of helping. So when I started my own CSA, I always would have a couple of different events a year. Maybe it was garlic harvest or maybe it was um, a weeding party. And I never got a lot of uptake. Um, our people were always super excited about their vegetables every week, but I found that there wasn't a lot of um, people wanting to give, you know, in their own time. So now what we started actually last year, we had our first annual um, farm potluck and people basically just were able to come. There wasn't any work component to it because I always I just found I wasn't getting the uptake in that and we had a great turnout and people had so much fun and there was lots of great food and so I think I'm going to definitely going to continue that again um, and 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 we do have some people that do like to come out there's always those same people that come every year and and they really really like that but I find for the most part um, yeah the working part of it just didn't work out for me. <laughs> And are you staffing those CSA sites then when you're when you're going to town on Tuesday and Thursday? Yeah, I do that myself. Um, I'm a bit of a control freak. Um, we could put that into a positive or a negative spin, I guess. Um, I love. I think the main reason that this has been so successful and my members are so happy is because when they have questions, I'm there to talk to. Or if they have got a problem, I'm the face they see. And we've developed relationships with these people. Like I've had members with us since I was pregnant with my kids and they're almost seven and, and I've seen their own kids grow up. So I think it's super important that I'm the face of the CSA. I do have people who usually come and help me set up the tent, for instance, and kind of help me set up the produce and they'll get like whatever vegetables they want in return, just kind of friends um, that might live close by. But yeah, no, I generally, I reserve the CSA pickups for myself because I really, really enjoy it. So you guys purchased your first farm in in 2006, and then and you moved to your you moved to your current location in what year? Yeah, we moved to the this farm here in 2011. And so, did you retain your customers when you made that move? Was that something where you had a a group that that came with you? Oh yeah, everybody came with us because essentially, I mean, PEI is very small. We and it's it's it sounds funny when we said we were going to move. We only moved 45 minutes away, which people that live you know, in other places of the world, they think 45 minutes, that's what I drive every day. But we, and I guess I'll just backtrack a little bit. The reason that when we moved, my husband was working in Summerside and it was basically, you know, it was a 40 minute drive twice a day. So we just decided that, well, hey, if we could be closer to town, why not? So yeah, so basically our customers, we still deliver to the same places. Really, most of them probably never even knew we moved. Well, they knew because we told them, but it really didn't affect, yeah, it definitely didn't affect them at all. Okay. And, and when you guys moved then to, to Brookvale in 2006 and, and started your operation, what kind of a marketing mix were you working with then? Yeah. So back in 2006, when we bought that farm, it was a 200 acre farm and it was really hilly and it was beautiful and it was gorgeous and fell in love right away. The price was right. And the, the buildings in the house were really, really old. So we basically bought them, um, a fixer upper. Um, so what we started with there, I was working full time at the local dairy. I was in quality control and my husband um, was working in Summerside. So we were both traveling back and forth. So what we were doing that first year is we were selling 
on kind of like on the weekends to the farmers markets, and um, and we had about a ten a ten member CSA. So we were both working full time and just farming. I guess you can say farming on the off hours. And then your business just grew to the point where you were able to to leave the dairy farming job. Yeah, it was actually a, a dairy processing where so I worked at a processing facility where they um, made cheese. But we we tested like all the cheese and the milk and all the different products that they made. But yeah, well, when we moved to the farm, that was the intention that within a few years that I would I would leave that job. Um, so I mean, my employer knew that it was only a matter of time before I would leave. So it was yeah, we were there. Well, I guess we farmed two years while I worked full time, and then in 2008 in the spring, I I left there to farm full time. So I was doing. A summer, the Summerside Farmers Market and the Charlottetown Farmers Market, um, and we had about I think we had ten member CSA. It was super small, um, but that was yeah, that was kind of like my first year, you know, leaving leaving the steady income to to, to jump into farming full time. It's a question I get a lot, both in my both in my consulting business and just from people writing and saying, hey, you know, I'm. I, I'm trying to make this decision or I'm trying to understand when's the right point to make the leap. How did you decide to make the leap from working full-time and farming part-time to farming full-time? Yeah. Um, I don't know because it wasn't, I know like I, my plan was always to farm was to farm ever since I was a kid, I knew I was going to farm at some capacity. Um, and I, I just had a feeling one day actually at work, I hadn't even really talked to my husband and I just said, you know what, I think I'll give them my notice. And it was just, it was as simple as that. Like, I mean, we had been farming, I had been growing vegetables since 2003 on a small plot behind my grandparents' house and I'd been selling steadily. So, I mean, I worked full time and farmed, you know, for quite a few years before I left. Like I was farming for probably five or six years before I really left that job. And I mean, it was, it was a small scale but I was making, I wanted to make sure that I, you know, that I enjoyed it. Cause it's one thing to apprentice on a farm and have your boss tell you what to do. And then it's the other thing to all of a sudden be responsible for, you know, all these people's vegetables. So I, I took my time, I worked and I made sure that the farming is, is what I wanted to do. So yeah, basically in 2008, I just decided that, um, yeah, I think the, t- the time is right. And I mean, luckily my husband had, he was employed as well. Um, he had a good paying job. So, it, you know, that, that definitely takes a bit of the risk out of it. I mean, if he, if we were going to try and survive at that time on the income that I was making on the farm, well, we wouldn't have been able to do it. So, um, but I had a business plan. I had projections and goals and I knew where I wanted to go. So I really felt comfortable um, that, and, and I guess it was just, there was just something inside me that, and I can't even describe what it was, but it was just like, okay, I, you know, I feel comfortable making this decision. And I mean, it was definitely a hard thing to do. I mean, I had my own office in, in this dairy and I loved what I did. I had great coworkers and, you know, it, I remember, I still remember the first day when my husband went to work without me and I was at the farm by myself. And I remember sitting there thinking, Oh, now what? Like I have, now to, what? Make, yeah. exactly, <laughs> I have to make all these decisions and, it was easy before because I always had that, you know, I always had that income as as backup. And now all of a sudden I have to be responsible for, you know, my part of this family. So it was definitely an eye opener. And that was, it was an interesting, an interesting summer, but um, and I, it's funny. It seems so long. It seems so long ago now. I mean, it really wasn't that long ago, but it, it's like a lifetime ago. 
you said you had a business plan, you had projections. And I, I know a lot of times people will say to me, well, I, why would I do a business plan? You know, nothing ever goes according to plan. It's farming, you know, it's business. And, and I, I'm curious, how, was that business plan valuable to you as you got started? Or, or did you just feel like that was something that was more of a, just a security blanket? Well, um, we're, we're very fortunate here, I got to say, on the island because we have tremendous government support for um, not only for organic, but for small local farmers. So there was many, there was a lot of programs back then. One that we were involved with was called the Future Farmer Program. And there was interest rebates um, as part of that program. And there was also training opportunities where they would pay, you know, pay a, per- a percentage of the training. So one of the things was they would pay for a business plan. So luckily enough, like we were able to hire someone to help us with the business plan. And I look back at it now and it seems hilarious because I had chickens in there and I had, we were going to have pigs and we were going to be completely self-sufficient. And I mean, I basically chopped 90% of that business plan apart. I haven't, and I didn't do most of it, but it was really interesting to see. And I, I think the greatest part for me now is to look back and think, really? Is that really where I thought I was going to go? Because it's so different kind of in the direction that, that I ended up going in. But I think it's important because you really have to, you have to think about the future because if it's just thinking about tomorrow, well, that's easy, but you know, where do you want to be in five years time? And where do you want to be in 10 years? Because before you know it, you know, it, we're almost 10 years. So it's, it's, it's really, uh, I think it's an, it's, it was a very valuable experience um, for sure. So I, I want to ask a little bit about Derek because I mean, your guys, the name of your guys' farm is Jen and Derek's Organic Farm, um, which I love, by the way. There's just like, they sort of like just lay it all out there. But Derek works off the farm, right? He does, yeah. And it's funny because when we, before we ever bought the Brookvale Farm, um, like we, we had our small plot behind my grandparents' house. And I always wanted to come up with this, you know, beautiful artistic name like all my other friends had. And you know, we couldn't, I'm just, I'm not artsy fartsy. I am not creative. I it could not come up with something cool to save my life. So one day mom said, why don't you call Jen and Derek's farm? And I was like, okay, <laughs> that works for me. So it's funny because in our, you know, when we were dating and our, our future plans, it was Derek and I were going to farm together. Like the plan was, it was Jen and Derek's farm. And well, it definitely, definitely, is Jen and Derek's farm, but um, I've decided that I don't work well with others. <laughs> so um, I I kind of have the mentality of I learn a certain way. Like I learned, I was trained on a, an organic farm in Guelph. So I tend to do things of, of how I was trained. So where Derek is a very open-minded person, likes to try different things. So we definitely clashed when it came to working together. So it didn't take us long to realize that our futures with Jen and Derek's farm working together wasn't going to happen. So without really, you know, having a big conversation like this is never going to work. Um, I think when we decided to move from Brookvale, because we had a 200 acre farm, we had lots, of, you know, we had, we could expand there. We had a beautiful woodlot, but we never could enjoy it because Derek was always working. You know, he worked off the farm and when he was home, I made him work with me. So, I mean, he was just worked to death. So um, we decided that that wasn't working well and that was not going to sustain us in a marriage for very long. So I basically, I was the one who was really interested in the vegetables um, and that's where we were making our money. So the rest of it, the chickens and, you know, the woodlots, that was just creating more work and there was no income was coming. 
So we basically decided to focus on the CSA, or I should say I decided to focus on the CSA. And he, I guess, without really saying he was going to stay working, it kind of made more sense because he had a good job and, and you know, he enjoyed what he was doing. But he, he has a very active role on the farm because he, um, well, he takes care of the kids a lot, but he also takes care of the equipment. I am not a mechanic. I'm actually terrible at machinery. I couldn't, you know, fix something to save my life. So he, he's really good at that. He, he can see a problem and he can fix it. He can build things for me. Um, he's pretty techy. So, so it's great. He definitely, he, he weeds with the, with our Alice Chalmers tractor. So he definitely has a role, but some people say you should change your name. It's just Jen's farm, which, you know, sometimes some days I do, <laughs> I do agree, but it's definitely, you know, it's still Jen and Derek's farm and don't, it's funny. Somebody may come to try and buy a, a bunch of carrots, and Derek wouldn't even know where the carrots were. He'd have no sweet clue. But, you know, he does have a role. And uh, I think we definitely get along a lot better now. And uh, and I think it's it, life's a lot simpler now that we've clearly just defined our roles, <laughs> for sure. You mentioned the kids. Now, you said you stopped working off the farm in 2008. Um, and then you had kids in 2009, right? Yeah, that was definitely not in the five-year business plan or the 10-year business plan. I was pretty well convinced that I wasn't having kids. Um, Didn't particularly like kids, so wasn't particularly looking for my own. But, you know, as you know, some things happen. So uh, we found out we were pregnant in 2000, uh, I guess, well, 2008, um, and found out I was pregnant with twins when I was 20 weeks pregnant. So that was, not only was I in a shock that I was actually pregnant, but it was a big shock to find out I was having twins. So it was, um, that was a big thing personally for me because I'm, was never very, um, a motherly person. I didn't have a lot of patience, never really wanted to have kids. So it was a really hard, hard thing for me personally to deal with because I was so happy. I'm really happy when I'm busy and when I'm outside working and the thoughts of having to slow down because I had two people growing in my stomach wasn't really my idea of a good time. So I had, I had to really struggle with, with that, which made me feel really guilty because I knew there was a lot of people out there who, you know, would love to have been in my shoes. So once I kind of came to reality that, yes, I'm going to have these two babies, that's fine. Then I worked, I worked just like I always did. I did everything. I worked up to the day they were born. They were born right on their due date at 40 weeks. I was as big as a house and I was digging potatoes the day they were born. But it was after they were born that uh, life really took a, took a turn because I had to give the farm over to Derek. He, he got nine months maternity leave and I had to sit in the house. So that was a, that was a, that was a long dark summer, but, but we all survived. <laughs> And, and so if that was in, if that was in 2009, your, your boys are, um, and Ben and Jake, right? Yeah, Ben and Jake, they're going to be seven in July. Okay. So that's got to be kind of interesting for you on the farm. It is. And it's funny because I talk a little bit there about how, you know, I wasn't, you know, super excited about it at first. Um, and you know, it's, like my grandmother always says, oh, you wouldn't give them back. You wouldn't give them back. And I definitely wouldn't give them back. Um, they're two real boys. They are rough and tumble and they are loud, which is very different from, I, I feel, from Derek and myself. We're pretty laid back, quiet people. And they're very theatrical and they are, they love to get dirty and they love beating up on each other. 
but they, um, they're not super into the farm. They, they, they like to come out and help me for about 30 seconds and then want to go eat something or go play on their bikes. So they're definitely not those farm kids who are at my side or, or want to do everything mommy does. And I think it's because I don't really do anything in their eyes. That's cool. You know, like I don't drive big tractors and, you know, we don't have chickens. So I think they think mommy's job is pretty boring. So they, they tend to spend, they like to play with their friends and they like to ride their bikes and they go to school. They're in grade one and uh, yeah, they love school and they, yeah, they're, they're great little guys. So Jen, I mean, I'm, I'm really curious about the whole, like, you know, how you as, I mean, not as a single mom, but as a single mom on the farm, I mean, you're, you know, you're there alone by yourself now, how you, how you managed that juggling act um, of having kids and having the farm at the same time. Yeah. So we were pretty lucky in the fact that Derek, um, he had nine months um, parental leave that he could take from his job. Um, Because I was self-employed, I didn't have any maternity benefits and I was also had a farm to run. So he, he was able to take nine months from his job. So he basically took over the farm and I became a mom. So it was a it was a struggle for me because I was so used to being outside and kind of calling the shots and and then I had to take a back seat and kind of watch Derek do the CSA and harvest the vegetables and while I'm inside trying to figure out how to hold two babies at once and and trying to you know make babies happy when I didn't really know what they were doing or what 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 was wrong with them so I figured about a five weeks old was kind of like when things started the light I think I feel like the light finally came on about five weeks old when I could kind of maneuver them around and I wasn't so scared of them like because I literally was scared of them because they're such little people and they cried all the time and I didn't know what to do so at five <laughs> weeks old I kind of you know I felt comfortable to take them out in public and I could take them for drives but I basically my biggest part when I, whenever I figured out how to you know how to put them on a schedule and I was big controversy but I you know the cry it out method when the babies learn teach themselves how to sleep so essentially we went from being like sleepless parents and sleepless babies to having two solid naps a day and sleeping through the night. So I basically would take a baby monitor and I would, as soon as they went down for their nap, I was outside. And as soon as they slept at night, I was outside. And I basically farmed for, I farmed with a baby monitor. Um, as far as it would let me get away from the house is, is as far as I would go. So I basically, <laughs> it was great. I have a couple of pictures um, from those days and every picture had me with a baby monitor and it just became, it was kind of like wearing a belt. It was like, I just didn't go anywhere without it. And that's how I farmed with a baby monitor. And luckily those guys were very consistent in their naps and they were very consistent in their sleep. So I was able to get a lot done. Um, and, and I did that for like, that was the first year Derek was out working, but the whole next year and the year after is basically how I farmed because I was home with them and the farm. It was just me. And I basically farmed by baby monitor. I would take them outside when they were awake. Well, we had a lot of black flies, so we couldn't get a lot of work done, but I basically, as soon as they were asleep, I was outside. So, and um, yeah, that's, that's how I farmed those early years was with that baby monitor. And, and I, and I got a good one and it worked well and I'm super grateful for it. And then, of course, I mean, at, at some point, they they weren't little babies anymore. They were toddlers, and then they were they were little kids. Um, how did you how did you manage the farm life with with four and five year olds underfoot? Right. Well, I felt a lot of guilt, to be honest, back in those days because I. I could not get a lot, like I got a lot of work done when they were sleeping, but I didn't get a lot of work done when they were awake. And I realized quickly that 
I wasn't going to be that mom who had her kids home at the farm because it just, it did not work for me. So um, I contacted a lady who lived about 15 minutes away. And as soon as they were old enough, and I honestly can't remember how old they were, it might've been three and a half. Then I put them into part-time daycare and I put them in two days a week. And that was just enough because I still napped then. So I was still able to, I had two full days plus nap times on the, on the other days. So I was able to get enough done to keep, to keep up with the work. Um, and then as soon as we moved, um, to the new farm, they were old enough. So then they went into Summerside to a daycare three days a week. And then they went to kindergarten, which is school, which is five days a week. I felt like I'd won the lottery when my kids got picked up. <laughs> that big yellow bus came and took them away. And uh, for, you know, eight solid hours, five days, I'm telling you, I was a pretty happy mama. So I did have a lot of guilt because I felt I would see on Facebook and all these groups, you know, parents with their kids at home. And I felt like, I felt like I was robbing them of something. Um, but I also know that I was not getting any work done when they were home and they weren't the type of kids who would just sit there and idly kind of like play, you know, like they, they're very, they're just, they always want to be kind of entertained. So I thought, you know, what better way to be entertained is than to have a bunch of kids around. So I feel for our family that that was definitely the right decision was putting them into part-time daycare. And I still feel a little guilty because people, I think people assume they say, Oh, it must be nice. You know, you work, you work for yourself and you work at your farm. Like your kids must be so helpful. And I always think like, well, where do you work? Like if you work at the bank, like do you take your kids to work and how helpful do you think that would be? Like they're just not helpful. So I, I sometimes feel like I like I should be super mom and I should have them home. But then, you know what, that just wasn't the model that was going to work for us. And I don't think it would have worked for them. They go stir crazy on the weekends. They just want to want to play with their friends and they want to, you know, they want to do things. So I think for us, it was it was definitely and still is. It's definitely the right decision because we have summer coming up. And, you know, when I was a kid in the summer, I didn't go to daycare like we stayed home. Like I grew up in a farm. But we were very much happy to just, you know, to do whatever. And, and Ben and Jake are, I think they just really benefit from, from a lot of stimulation and, and they're super, you know, they're super excited to be going to summer, the summer daycare program that they went to last year. And it's a five day a week program. They go on field trips all the time. They bike, they have so much fun. And, and, and I love it because I can focus on my work and I'm not worried about them, you know, while I'm using the tractor. I'm not worried about them when there's customers coming in. It just, for us, it's, it's definitely, it's how, it's how I've managed my sanity. <laughs> I can't send my business. You kind of need your sanity. And, and, and I will say, I mean, kids are not necessarily conducive to sanity. No, that's one thing that uh, I, I said sometimes I feel like God gives us kids to just, you know, to just test our level of sanity. Cause like I said, how can these little people, they're so cute little packages, but they can drive you to the edge. Like I, you know, and then like, no one else could talk to someone that way and get away with it. But these little people, they just, oh, I don't know. I mean, I love them to pieces, but I sure love, I sure love when that yellow bus comes and takes them to school. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I'd like to stop here, get a word from our sponsors and then, and then we'll be right back with Jen Campbell from Jen and Derek's organic farm. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of living media for organic growers since 1992. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant material, heat, labor, and overhead depends absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do. 
produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients that I could to make my own potting soil, and later on finding cheap potting soil already put together. But I found that what so many farmers have, that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost can tell story after story of customers who switch to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost's pre-buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options delivered at a time that works best for you. Plus, their shared truckloads program organizes shipping to other regions in ways that gets shipping prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Feed the soil. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by FarmFan. Most farmer's market customers only visit the market two or three times per season, and there are plenty who make it less often. Market dates simply get forgotten in the wash of soccer games, brunch dates, commuting, and other commitments that keep would-be market customers from becoming regular market shoppers, not to mention the challenges to your customers of knowing when market season begins and ends or keeping them on schedule for irregular winter markets. FarmFan lets you send a text message reminder to all of your customers, taking the detect fork out of the equation. Plus, you can let customers know what you'll have at market that day and even offer your farm fans special deals to increase the number of market customers who come specifically to see and buy from you. Unlike emails and social media, text messages are always on. 98% of text messages actually get read compared to 25% of emails and as little as 4% for some social media channels. Who doesn't check their phone when it buzzes? Visit the show notes page for this episode or the sponsor page at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash sponsors for 25% off your 6 or 12 month subscription to FarmFan. Turn your well-meaning occasional shoppers into regulars and create a following. farmfanapp.com. All right, and we're back with Jen Campbell from Jen and Derek's Organic Farm on Prince Edward Island or PEI as those in the know call it, up in Canada over on the East Coast. Jen, I thought it would be interesting to talk now, you know, turning away from the family and talking a little bit about about how you actually do your your two acres of vegetable farming. Um, you said that when, when we were talking before, um, you said you're not doing this JM 48 style. You're not, you're not cranking out $150,000 an acre worth of vegetables. What, what are you producing on your farm? Yeah, we're definitely not. Um, I don't want to say I'm not productive because I think that I'm doing, you know, the best job I can. Um, and I think I'm doing a good job at my production, but I'm not, super intensively planting. Um, we, I think, and like my sales are probably in the ballpark between like 80 and $90,000. Um, and I'm happy with that. I obviously would love to make more. And, and if I, you know, was more, um, trying to get more production out of, um, out of the land, but at the same time, I feel that I might be compromising a bit on my personal life because the the way that I farm is I farm with a cultivating tractor so that I don't have to be out there weeding. So I, I chose to kind of farm with iron, with tractors, so that I, I wouldn't necessarily be out there with a hoe, so that I would have more time for family. So I guess maybe sometimes you you might give up a bit um, in production, maybe, to, to have a little bit more of a quality of life. So that's the production the method that I chose. I chose to, to, to farm with tractors versus being highly, highly productive. So, and sometimes I wonder like, did I make the right decision? Because I go to these um, workshops and I hear like, you know, the $150,000 an acre. And I think, wow, like, man, that sounds amazing. But I, I feel comfortable with, 
with the production methods that I've, that I've kind of gone with and I'm, I'm, I'm happy with my sales. Um, you know, like last year we added in that winter CSA with plated and we're going to, we're increasing that big time for this year. And, you know, my sales, I'm hoping to break easily 100, like a hundred thousand dollars this year. And, and I'm happy with that. I, I'm not looking to make a million dollars. I'm just looking to, um, you know, to, to provide for my family and, and to feel like I'm contributing, you know, to my fair share. Tell us a little bit about that winter CSA program with Plate It. Yeah, so a winter CSA was never something that I wanted to do. I never, you know, the idea of working in the winter, like, ooh, I don't like the thoughts of that. Um, so my friend Soleil, who who um, runs Soleil's farm, uh, she and her partner Lee uh, run Plate It, and she um, asked if I wanted to work with her on a winter CSA. And I thought, eh, I don't really know if I want to do that. But um, she, we talked about it a bit more, and, and we each chose the crops that we wanted to provide. So she was the face behind it, and I was kind of like a, a – um, I was supplier, but I was also helping her organize it because she had never ran a CSA before. So I gave her basically like our client list, and, and I helped her kind of walk through some of the logistics. And, yeah, we basically – we supplied um, like carrots and parsnips, um, some hacker eye turnips, onions, shallots, parsley roots, um, leeks. And every week she would come here and pick up the vegetables. And we, we did um, uh, one of the drop-off locations was here so people could come pick it up. But that was really great because I've never had um, income from the farm over the winter. And in my mind, where I thought the winter would be terrible and it would be cold, I realized that it really wasn't. I had all, everything was in storage. She would give the orders once a week. I knew I knew what I needed to pack, and it, it was really great. Um, I I enjoyed that one. It would take a bit, one day a week to to pack my my share of what was going into the shares, um, and I realized that there's definitely the winter. I think is where I would want to to expand into because I feel your summer hours are pretty well tapped. I don't know how much harder I could physically work in the summer or, or want to work, but the winter the kids are in school and I'm basically just, it's just planning that I'm doing. Um, I definitely have more energy um, to, to be doing more of the work. And so I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about the winter program and I'm pretty excited to, to keep working with Plate It to expand that. Cause I really feel like that's definitely going to, um, going to help to grow our business without necessarily having to, to expand, or to find more customers. I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about it. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing for the, for those root crops and maybe walk us th- through that process. So you're now on two acres, you're not, you're not out mechanically harvesting all of those roots to put them into storage. No. So last year was the first time I put anything into storage. Um, I, you know, our winter, our, our fall CSA or our our main season CSA always would end um, the end of October, 1st of November. And then I always did like a, a bulk harvest for those CSA members who wanted, you know, 50 pounds of carrots, but I never, ever stored anything before. So I was really nervous on, you know, how to keep humidity proper or to, how to keep the cooler cool. Cause all I have, I have a, a truck box cooler with a cool bot in it. And, you know, I have no fancy gadgets. So I basically, I had my two employees and we painstakingly harvested everything by hand. Um, I washed, I have a small barrel washer and I, you know, I washed all the roots and dried them all and then put them into like those feed bags. 
And because I, I had been to a, a session on winter storage where the Arnolds had come up to PEI and talked about um, cold storage. But I mean, I, I literally knew nothing about, about it. It was just kind of a hope and not a prayer. And it was really an experiment that Soleil and I were doing with this winter CSA. Neither of us really knew how it was going to work. But we put everything in storage and, you know, I was surprised at how well everything lasted. lasted right up until the middle of March. And that's when um, the winter CSA ended. And I was really, really pleased um, um, with the sales and really pleased with um, the quality of how well everything kept. But it was definitely a learning curve. And storage is definitely something that I'm going to have to expand into. And I'm going to have to have to buy a bigger cooler because we definitely don't have room for the capacity that, of which I'm going to have to store for this winter. So those feed bags that you were storing crops in, that those are those, it's a woven, uh, basically a woven polyethylene, right? Yeah, exactly. I bought them um, at a local feed or a, a bag company. Luckily, there we have a lot of great local suppliers here. So so I was able to buy them from there. And uh, yeah, and I, I had a mister in my cooler that my brother um, had given me that sometimes, sometimes they use in their potato warehouse. So I would go in and I, I had a... Um, hydrometer I think it's called but basically test the humidity I would go in I don't know a couple times a week and test the humidity and I would turn on my mister and but it was totally amateur um but you know one thing I realized is that I, you really don't need like a fancy system um and spend a lot of money um so that was a really a big eye-opener was like wow like the amount of money that I was able to make over the winter um and you know easily could easily make you know triple that by you know just expanding, you know, double, doubling the cooler. So, so I'm excited to see, to see where that's going to go. So, yeah. And I'm interested in how you were doing the harvest of the crops then. So, um, I mean, again, because for me, we were operating on quite a bit of a larger scale. Uh, so when you were, when you're doing the crops, are you out there just with a, with a digging fork, uh, and, you know, digging up the carrots and pulling off the tops and throwing them in the bags? Well, no, not really. Um, uh, a couple years ago, because I used to dig carrots with a pitchfork, but um, my knee my knee started to hurt, so I uh, begged my brother to build me an undercutter bar for my tractor. So basically, whenever I'm digging carrots now, or parsnips, or leeks, or undercutting the onions, I have this undercutter bar, and all it is is just you basically put your tractor in four wheel drive, and you just drive through the bed, and it just goes underneath the carrots and just shatters the soil. So that way. So I'll drive through the bed, do that, and then the carrots just do, you just pull them out without digging with a fork or anything. But yeah, we were hand snapping the tops, and then I would put them. They would get loaded into the truck in the Rubbermaid containers. I take them back to the shop. I put them through my barrel washer, and then I would put them in those black bulb crates, drift to kind of like to drift dry overnight, and then I would put them in those bags and seal the bags, and then I put the bags into the cooler. So like I said. Um, there's a, you know, everyone says, oh, some, some people say, oh, you shouldn't wash your carrots. And the next person said, oh, yeah, you should always wash your carrots. So, so I left some unwashed and some washed. Um, and, and they both stored extremely well. So I was pretty pleased. I always like leaving. I mean, I'm just going to weigh in on, on the washed versus unwashed debate because I know it's a huge, it's a huge <laughs> source of contention. And, and I know people that succeed both ways. I always like leaving them unwashed because then you can wash them in the wintertime and but I suppose that really is dependent on having the facilities to do that. And and that was a big thing because I I did build a shop um, two years ago, 
but um, I don't have any heat in it. So my barrel washer, essentially, my big concern with having them unwashed was, well, then I have to wash them in the winter and my shop's not heated. So it was the whole, like, is my water going to freeze? So basically, that's why I basically washed them because I knew, well, at least if they're washed, then they're washed because our clay here, like our dirty are so red that the carrots get stained really bad. So mm. that was, that was another reason why I wanted to wash them. But, but yeah, it's controversy over that. It depends who you talk to, but now Soleil stored some carrots um, unwashed and, and she's still putting them in her spring CSA. And I mean, here we are, you know, into June and they're still, they're still really good. So I definitely see the, I definitely see, I think next year I'm going to do half of them washed and half of them unwashed because I am going to put heat in my shop this winter. So tell us a little bit about the about your packing facility because you said that you do food safety consulting for the for the potato farmers around you. I'm curious how you ended up implementing a a, a packing shed then on on your farm on your scale. Right. So our our shop's pretty small. It's um it's a thirty by thirty building, and I built um an overhang like a, a lean to off the side, and so the shop itself um is where we would we bag all of our greens so we wash everything outside but it's under um it's it's open i guess on all three sides but it's got a concrete floor and that's where my barrel washer is um and that's where our wash tubs are so everything gets washed outside and then um gets put into the cooler but then the bagging is done um is done inside now we're not um we're not certified with anyone for on-farm food safety um here in pei or anything um, so, but I do take a lot of what I consult or what I recommend to the, to my growers. I try to implement a lot of that here. So, um, you know, we have, um, employee training, um, sheets on, you know, on the importance of, of hygiene and I have training sheets on the importance of proper, uh, handling of the vegetables. Um, so, you know, and I have shadowproof light bulbs um different things like that so yeah so it's a great building before i used to before i had the shop i literally washed vegetables under a tent like a tent you'd get at like walmart and i packed everything in my little single car garage so the year that i decided to build the shop i mean it was a huge expense but it was kind of like i got to the point where i'm either going to make the business smaller so that it fits with the scale or i'm going to build a shop and make it a bit bigger and and the as soon as the shop was built, like I can't believe that I used to farm in the small spaces or I used to pr- pr- process in the small spaces that I did because having the shop is just, it's a luxury now. Like I look back and I think, oh my goodness, I used to work in my garage. Like that's crazy. And now I have this big, beautiful building that, you know, I'm super, super proud of and super happy to have. Now you just mentioned employees and, and you were talking a little bit about tractors before. So can I, I kind of want to round out the picture of how your how your farm actually worked? So you've got you've got the cultivating tractor. Do you have another tractor as well? Yes. So I kind of um, probably have a little more machinery around than I actually need, but I definitely love tractors and I, I love things that make my job easier. So I have um, a front end loader tractor. I have a four wheel drive um, Ford, and that I use. Um, to I put the discs on or put the harrows. I use that uh, my raised bed maker, um, and then we have a second tractor. It's a little small international tractor, and it actually I haven't even used it this year. But um, we when we first had our other farm, we had a different tractor, and we sold it and we bought the red tractor, the international. But then my dad upgraded his front end loader 
to a new big, beautiful tractor. And so I bought his old tractor. So in a way we have one tractor too many, but um, we had it and it was paid for. So, you know, and it works really great. So we use that when we're spreading compost or if we're going to use the tiller, we leave the tiller on the international tractor. So we're not changing implements all the time. Um, and then the, the Alice Chalmers, the ACG, it's the, it's a cultivating tractor. And uh, I couldn't imagine farming without it because that basically we cultivate everything, everything with the G and it's electric. So it's nice because it's, super quiet and yeah um we definitely for our for our for our scale we we have what i call a lot of iron kicking around because um i don't want to be out there with a hoe if i don't have to because i don't figure anyone's paying me to weed right they're paying me to harvest and to plant so uh, so i try to eliminate um the amount of time that that we're out there weeding or hoeing so yeah did you guys do the electric conversion on the g yourselves we did. We bought the G from this Superman, this lovely man that we bought the tractor from in Ontario. Um, unfortunately, his wife had passed away, and he was going to convert the tractor himself, but he never got around to it. So when we got the G, it had the conversion kit already. It had never been put together, but so we're lucky we didn't have to like source the parts or anything. So Derek did that himself, and it was really really easy. He set it all up in the garage first and made sure it worked. And he literally took him a half an hour probably to put it all together. So we're pretty proud of the G. It, um, I remember there's a firm that I follow, a blog, uh, Oak Hill Organics. And uh, I think it's Casey and Katie. Anyways, they, I remember one time they talked about investing in equipment that is going to save you time. And and one of the first things I bought, I remember, was this Alice Chalmers tractor. And I thought, like, I'm never going to, like, how am I ever going to afford to buy one of these tractors? Anyway, so that's been one of the the, the mentalities that I've, I've taken kind of from the beginning is, well, okay, if I'm going to spend money on something, it's going to have to make my life better and easier. And especially when Ben and Jake came along and I realized, like, you know, there's not endless hours in the day anymore. Like, these little people need to eat and it takes a long time to put them to bed. So, you know spare time or time to work is, is harder to come by. So buying the, the Alice Chalmers was the best thing that for sure we ever did. It was, it was, it's, it's been an invaluable tool for sure. And then how many employees do you have working with you on the farm? So we never used to have any employees. And then one year, I can't even remember what year I, I had a volunteer who would come out and help me maybe two afternoons a week. And I realized, wow, like you can get a lot more done when you have an extra person. So the year the boys were born, we hired somebody um, to help Derek that summer. And I've had an employee ever since. So um, last year was the first year where I had two employees. I had my main girl was Sarah, and this will be her third year coming back. And she works four days a week, maybe six to seven hours a day. And then Marty, um, this will be her second year coming back. She worked two days a week, about six or seven hours a day. So yeah, so it's, they're not full-time hours, and Sarah, they only each only work, you know, to the CSA season, so they're here from, like, June until the end of October, so they're not full-time, but um, but it's definitely, and I, I feel like I don't really need somebody around in the spring. It's mostly once the harvesting happens. That's when I find I really need, um, because we do everything by hand, that, that's when I really need the extra help. So, And I'm lucky that, I mean, this is Sarah's third year coming back, and this is Marty's second year. So I feel like I'm pretty lucky, um, you know, to have them return because it's a lot of work to train somebody every year. So I'm super, I'm super grateful that they've decided to return. 
So, Jen, I'm imagining that it's it's a pretty cool climate there on Prince Edward Island. Can you tell us a little bit about about what you run into climate wise and how that affects the things that you're choosing to grow? Sure. Yeah, we we're pretty chilly here in the spring um, and in the fall, although our falls are tending for some reason they're getting warmer longer. But yeah, um, in the spring, I use my greenhouse to grow early season greens um, and then I grow like cold season greens outside like my kale undercover and my arugulas. But in the summer, like once July hits, it does get pretty warm. Like we're averaging, I'd say between, you know, mid twenties, it can get, it can get to the low thirties, but that's unusual, but it's really humid here. Like um, it's really high humidity and it, it can feel really muggy, which is our big thing. So we can have a lot of disease pressure here. Like blight is definitely um, a big problem here on PEI and was a huge problem for the potato growers. So I'm really particular on, on say my tomatoes. I only grow blight resistant varieties outside and I try to grow like short season varieties. So um, I used to grow like, you know, heirlooms and all different kinds, but I just found the blight pressure and I don't want to be, I don't want to be that neighbor who, you know, had blight in their tomatoes. So I, I've I've gone to the blight resistant varieties, um, the Defiance and the Mountain Magic. So I'm really pleased with those two varieties. I found that they've produced really consistently and my customers seem to like them. And in my greenhouse, I am growing grafted tomato varieties um, that are more like a cherry variety, cherry varieties that are that are grafted. So I am growing more of a of a collection. Uh, for, for my customers as well, but um, I've I know that I've been the only one around for miles who's had any tomatoes the last you know since I started growing in blight resistance. So and we, we've we've sold a lot of plants to our neighbors <clears throat> and to plant sales the last few years because people uh, um, are realizing that yeah maybe the blight resistant aren't maybe not the most beautiful or you know the more unique, but it's great in a blight year and we we often do get blight here at the end of the season, so it is great to have tomatoes you know, in October when everyone else is there totally dead. Well, with that, Jen, I'd like to turn to our lightning round at the end of the show here. So what's your favorite tool on the farm? Ooh, that's a good one. I have, I have so many favorite tools. (laughs) Um, I think I'd have to say that the cutter bar, the undercutter bar that my brother made for me, um, I have, that has saved my knees. Um, so that essentially, I think, has kept me farming. Without that, I'm not physically sure that I would could have done it anymore. So um, the undercutter bar is amazing. I can't imagine that people still dig carrots with a fork because that thing is awesome. I love our Alice Chalmers cultivating tractor because Derek, he does most of the weeding. He can go out and weed in an hour, what, what would take me and employees like a day. So I love that we have the basket weeder on our G. And I, I, I love the basket weeder. And one thing for a hand tool, it's, it's like a stirrup hoe, but it's actually not from Johnny's. I do have Johnny's stirrup hoes, but um, because in Canada, it's, the shipping is kind of expensive, but it's also expensive to bring it in across the border. So I found a, another company called Garant, and they make it just looks like, just looks like the, um, the Johnny's version, but it's a Canadian company. And it's called like the Grizzly Action Hoe Pro Series. And uh, it's amazing. So it's just nice for us Canadians who get something a little more local. So I think, I think those would probably be, oh, I have to mention another one. Um, row covers are my least favorite thing. But um, we built this, it's not even a device, it's just two sawhorses and you use PVC pipe 
and um, it's the PVC and the end just has an attachment um, so you can roll up your row cover. So instead of like bundling it all in from the field, I can, when I've done a bed, I can roll up the, the bed and then I mark on the ends with a, a Sharpie, you know, how long the, the row cover was, what shape it was in. So that's really changed. Um, instead of row cover being a big mess and you didn't know how long it was. So I think those are some of the things just off the top of my head that, that I would think would be my favorite. What's your favorite crop to grow? Yes. I, you know, it's funny. I get asked that all the time. Um, and I find it hard to pick, but I think if I had to pick, I like growing colored carrots. Um, the restaurants buy a lot of multicolored carrots for us um, from like a baby size. But I really like, um, I love when they just come out of the barrel washer and they're just, they're all the multicolored and they're all together and they're all beautiful. And I just, I think they're gorgeous. And when I can have a really weed-free section of carrots, I just, I think they look beautiful. Um, but I like growing lettuce. Like I like the Salanova mix. Like I used to always direct seed my lettuce mix. Um, and then a couple of my friends here in the island, they started like transplanting their their mix and, and cut and come again. And I had never done that before. Um, and so last year was my first year growing like the Salanovas. And I also grew, I guess, I'm not sure what they call them, but the Osborne multi-leaf, I think some of them are. And yeah, I really, I really, that really changed our lettuce production. Um, I found the quality went up a lot. And yeah, so I, I used to really not like harvesting lettuce and I really didn't like washing it. Cause when I found, when I direct seeded it, I always had, you know, you'd always get those kind of the, the, the poor leaves at the bottom. So now I find, I find lettuce is, that's really sped up the process. So I, I'm loving the Salanovas. I don't like the price, but I love the, I love the, the production. What was the last purely recreational activity you did? Uh, wow. Purely recreational. Uh, I guess I took the boys for a bike ride. Does that count? That counts. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, we like to, we're lucky here on the island because we used to have trains, but they took all the trains out, I mean, years ago, but all the railroad uh, tracks were ripped up and they made them into, um, it's just, they call it rails for trails and it's all like light gravel. Um, and so you can, you know, you can bike the whole one tip of the island to the other. So it's great. We can just, you can park anywhere basically and find a trail and you can bike forever. So it's, it's pretty awesome. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I think if I could tell myself anything, I think I would tell myself to do a second apprenticeship because I did a nine month apprenticeship on an amazing farm. I was super lucky. Um, I had a great farmer who essentially inspired me to do what I do because when I grew up, farm, my farm was, was run by men and the women either took care of the kids or they did the books or they worked off the farm. So this was the first farm I ever worked on that was run by a woman. And I think if I had taken a second apprenticeship after that one, I think I would have had more confidence going into starting my own farm. I think it only one apprenticeship, I think just doesn't quite give you, in my opinion, it didn't give me enough confidence to, I think that's why it took me so long before I started my own farm. But I think another thing is confidence. Like I, I still feel now, like I, I still feel like I'm a bit of a frauder. Like I don't have a lot of confidence in what I do. Like, I don't know if it's because, I'm a small producer and, you know, amidst giant producers. So I think, I think even now I need to tell myself, you know, like have more confidence in what you do, but back then just to be proud, you know, don't, you don't have to, Oh, I'm just a small farmer. You know, you don't have to apologize for what you do. Um, But the one thing that I wish I had done and I never did until this past year 
is I wish I had to set myself up with like accounting software. I always just did my books on spreadsheets. Um, and then I finally, um, I finally got trained in the QuickBooks accounting. And then this past year I switched over to the Farm Credit Canada program analyst. And that's really changed. Um, I feel how I look at my business because within a click of a, a, a button, I mean, I can see who owes me money, who I owe money. I can see, you know, um, where I'm spending my money, where I'm losing money. And it's just, it's really changed how I view my business. So if that's one thing I could have done years ago, that's what I would have done is, is got myself set up with, with proper accounting software. All right. Jen, thank you so much for taking the time this morning to talk to us on the Farmer to Farmer podcast. I really appreciate all your insights and your and the fact that you're so willing to share your experience with us. Well, I'm, I'm so pleased to be asked. It's, uh, it's quite an honor, and uh, I'm, I'm so happy that, that, that you asked me. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 72 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episode page or just searching for Campbell. That's C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L. You know, when I say you can find the notes by looking on the episodes page and all of that that I say at the end of every episode, what I really mean by the notes is we've got a description of the episode and we've got some quotes we pulled out from the show. But then I think the really cool thing that we do is we've got links from the show. So, you know, when Jen talks about the the tools that she's getting up in Canada or when she talks about that the leaf lettuce that she really likes from Osborne Seed Company, we go ahead and try to track that stuff down and make sure that there's that link is there for you so that you don't have to remember everything from while you're out there driving the tractor and listening to the Farmer Farm podcast. Because, you know, it's hard sometimes to stop and write stuff down and all that. So this is a place where you can go, oh, yeah, I just need to remember to go check out those show notes, farmertofarmerpodcast.com, look up somebody's last name, or just scroll through the episodes pages, which are set up kind of like a blog. So check that out. You know, I also want to say one of my favorite things about managing presentations at the Moses Organic Farming Conference, which I did for 13 some odd years, starting in about 2000, is I really like keeping my ears to the ground for the real stories of farming, not just the flashy success stories to make great books, although, wow, those are cool and inspiring and tremendously valuable. And I know that I've gotten so much from working for some of the big names in agriculture, but I also really like digging out the stories of the farmers who are just out there doing it, making things work day after day, figuring stuff out, figuring out how to manage whatever life throws at them, because that's what most of us are doing. And I wanted everybody to be part of the story. We've all got so much to learn from each other. And that's why it's such an honor to be in the position of finding people like Jen or Nate or Janet or Matt or Laura. And I I could go on and on. And I've heard again and again from listeners how much they appreciate the inspiration and the information that the Farmer to Farmer podcast provides. And I want to keep it coming and I want to keep making it better. Please keep your ears on this space for some ways that you can become a bigger part of the Purple Pitchfork family and support the Farmer to Farmer podcast. In the meantime, if you enjoy the show, I'll bet you'd like to be on my email list, The Flying Rutabaga. You can check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review, talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook about the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Your reviews and your referrals are the bread and butter of our ability to reach out to sponsors to help make this show work. Finally, thank you so much to everybody who has taken the time to submit a guest suggestion. Many of these episodes come directly from your recommendations on the suggestions form on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. (laughs) 